When there's a hard uh, hardback, black hardback around you underneath the seat, you're more than welcome to turn to Hebrews 10 with us. Um, that's where we'll be this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. Well into our series on Hebrews. Um, we've been at it for a while now. We're getting close to the end of the book. Um, we, we do this a lot here, preach the books of the Bible, and, and there's always kind of like a culture shock for me when we finally get out of a book that we've been in for a long time. Uh, so we've got some good plans um, ahead after we get done with Hebrews, but still some good stuff in Hebrews to, to address and to walk through. A few weeks ago, I was at a restaurant, and I was uh, just trying to relax, so I brought a book, and I was sitting at kind of the a little bar area, a little table that gutted out from the wall by the window facing the street. And so I'm sitting there just eating, I'm relaxing, reading my book, uh, and there's lots of different families in there. A family walks in, um, and, and they kind of order, and the dad goes to sit down, and, and the bar, you can almost imagine like this. And he sits down on a stool, and he leans back and just gets jabbed in the back. And uh, so he lets out this ferocious yell. And I turn around, and I'm, I'm right, I'm like two feet away from him. And he's, I mean, grimacing, and he's like looking at his back, looking at the table, and looking at me. Like if I somehow should have stopped him um, from jabbing his back. And so I'm like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And, and so we struck up kind of a conversation. I get to know him and his wife. His name is Matt. He's had a wife named Sharon. And, and we talk for a couple minutes, and then I go back to reading my book. Um, and I'm reading my book and just kind of enjoying my meal. And they had two kids who had come in and sat down with them. And I, I hear him address his son and call him Leviticus. And I think that is awesome. God is smiling on me today. Is that kid's name really Leviticus? And so I turn around and go, Matt, is your son's name Leviticus? And he's like, yeah, it is. And I'm like, wow, I've never met someone with the name Leviticus. And he goes, it's from the Bible, actually. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> I was like, is that, is that why y'all named him Leviticus? Or is that? He's like, well, it's a family name. Eventually, a couple generations up, it was from the Bible. And I was like, very, very interesting. Um, if you don't know, Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. Um, it's mainly like this real dense priestly code, um, like real foreign to us. If you had to pick a book of the Bible that you thought maybe was the least relevant to your life, you'd probably pick Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus, you might know it as the place where I'm um, reading through the Bible plans go to die. Uh, so most people in January will say, I'm going to read through the entire Bible. They get to Leviticus, and they kind of fizzle out a little bit. Leviticus is where you get kind of trapped and choked out on that. Um, and so <laughs> a church walking through the book of Hebrews is as strange to some as naming your child Leviticus. Um, and I say that because, um, I mean, it's so foreign to us. And so we, we, we mentioned this multiple times and as we started out. Hebrews is a neglected book of the Bible, um, particularly of the New Testament, for good reason that we've seen. I mean, you've seen why people would want to avoid Hebrews. Um, it's full of Old Testament references and quotes, and we don't do a lot of Old Testament anymore, right? I mean, we try to shy away from that. Uh, and it's full of, we saw the past few chapters, blood sacrifices. It's full of blood and death and sacrifice and blood and blood. We saw last chapter in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you are here with us last week, we learned some Greek. We learned the Greek for that phrase. I mean, so this is so foreign to us, and um, we have done a lot of work as we've walked through Hebrews, particularly in the last few weeks as we've gone through kind of the, the blood sacrifice section. Uh, and as we go into chapter 10, we're kind of approaching the end of this little section. Uh, so when you start out, when a, a preacher starts out in a book of the Bible to preach through it, there's always kind of some red flag areas that you're like, I just got to get through that section right there. When we went through Micah, it was the judgment poems. It's like, if we can just do all of Micah's, y'all are going to die then we'll be good. Um, in Hebrews, it was this. It was, can we get through the temple sacrificial system? Can we understand all the blood sacrifice things that are happening? And we're approaching the end here. As we go into chapter 10, and we'll pick up in verse 1, it'll be for us a really good recap 
of where we've been uh, and also a good transition into the next couple of weeks uh, as we keep going in Hebrews. So we'll pick it up in Hebrews chapter 10. A couple things to remember as we get started here. Uh, if you remember in the beginning of chapter 8, we started talking about the new covenant. So a quote from Jeremiah 31 was quoted by the author of Hebrews about the new covenant, um, about God's promise that he would make with his people to be at one with them for atonement. I will be their God. They will be my people. Two of the promises in the new covenant were I will forgive their sins and I will transform them. I'll write my law on their heart and their mind that they won't be tied to their hand or to the forehead or written on their door, but it'll be inside of them. I'll do a supernatural work where I'll transform their desires. And so we've been in new covenant land or territory over the past few chapters, and we are wrapping that up as we get to chapter 10. Um, and the idea here has been a temple, tent, um, tabernacle idea um, where God dwells in the Holy of Holies and his worshipers or his people approach him. And so our deepest need, according to Hebrews, is to enter into God's presence, to enter into the Holy of Holies. That's where salvation is found. Um, in chapters 3 and 4, the image that we were given, the idea that we were given, was that of the wilderness and the promised land. Do you remember? We are right outside the promised land, waiting to get into eternity. Well, here in the last few chapters, the image has been of temple, tabernacle, the tents. There's a place where God dwells, and we are trying to approach Him. The idea behind this is this Jewish idea that God is the source of everything good. So Psalm 16:2, I have no good apart from you. That every single thing in this entire universe that brings us joy or life or wholeness or peace is from God. So the, the idea here, I mean, this kind of explains the fall to you in Genesis 3. So if a good God creates the entire world, what happens when we leave that good God? Well, we find bad. We find darkness and evil and corruption and death. And so our, our greatest need is to be with God, to be in front of him, to be beside him, to find life and peace and joy and wholeness in his presence. Now, the problem with this um, from all of time is that you and I cannot just approach God. We cannot just come near him because there's something that has separated us from him. And that is our sin. We talked about this at length last week. Um, our sin is seen uh, as a uncleanness or as a dirtiness. It's a stain. We use this language all the time. We say our sins have been washed away. And it's the same idea in human relationships. Whereas if, if I came to you and I smelled, I mean, I just hadn't taken a shower in weeks and weeks, you would step away from me. There would be a gap in our relationship. This is the idea. God, we approach him. He goes, step back a little bit. Don't, don't enter into my presence. You are unclean. And so sacrifice was needed to wash us of our sins. And the whole Old Testament, the, the Old Covenant was set up under this assumption. And again, we, we talked at length. We can't review all of it. Last week, two weeks ago, um, the idea of sacrifice. Why bloodshed, you and I can't look back on that and say it's barbaric. I mean, if you remember from last week, the Hebrew people would say, we live in a much more bloody world than they did. So blood was needed to wash our sins away so that we could enter into God's presence. A sacrifice was needed. And now the argument of Hebrews all throughout has been that the Old Covenant has prepared us to understand Jesus. So all along, this whole system that was set up has been preparing us to understand. It's been pointing us toward so that when Jesus came, we would understand and have language. We would have the ability to, to praise him and worship him and to follow him in faith. 
the whole Old Covenant has been preparing us. And so today, as we get into Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to see two things um, from the author. We're going to be given a picture and a posture. So I want to apologize just from the start. If you remember last week, um, we had, uh, I had a phrase that rhymed on the worship guide. Now we have alliteration. Next week, there'll be an acronym. I'm sorry. <laughs> Those of us who have Baptist backgrounds are getting nervous right now. What's happening to Mike? It's just how it happens. They both start with P, all right? Posture, we're given a posture to look at, to how the Old Testament prepared us to understand Jesus. We're given a picture. So we'll look at this picture first. Chapter 10, verse 1. I invite you to read with me. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. Okay, the idea here is that the law and all the sacrifices given under the law, it was a picture of the reality that we would see in Jesus, in his sacrifice. And so in this old system, you've got this daily repetition of people bringing animals and other goods and sacrificing it to God. You've got this constant shedding of blood. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, there'd be this big offering where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, God's presence, and he would offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to atone for sins. And you've got all of these things happening. Hebrews is going to say it was all a picture. It was a shadow is the word he used here, of the, the true form. So a shadow is cast, and it can tell you a little bit about the form, but it's not the form. It's, it's pointing towards the form. It's, it's like a picture in a sense. And so pictures can be very informative for us. I mean, you can see a picture and know a lot about somebody. But pictures can also be misleading. I mean, pictures can, can often lead you down the wrong path or lead you to wrong assumptions. Pictures, shadows, are incomplete. They're not bad or wrong. They're just incomplete. They're pointing to something more, to the real thing. So I've got a picture on my desk, I, I brought it out here, of my family. So this is my family. Uh, there's six of us now. Uh, we just had a new member of the family, so that's why I had to count. Uh, she was adopted a, a few months ago. Um, and so this is my family. I love my family very much. Now my parents, you should know this about them, are great at giving me advice. And so they know so much about me um, that I can go to them and ask them a question and they know exactly um, almost every time how I should react in that situation. You should do this. You should avoid this. My brother, I love. He's 10 years old. We love to wrestle and just goof off. Um, but I can say this about this picture. This picture is at my desk, but this picture doesn't give me good advice. Like if I, if I were to, to look at my mom and dad and go, hey, what should I do here? There, there's not going to be a response. And my brother... I'm not going to be able to wrestle with him with this picture. I'll just kind of hurt my hands with the glass and the, the wood. Because the picture's incomplete. The picture is pointing to the reality that there are flesh and blood human beings who, who are my family, who love me and care for me. The picture is, is pointing to something else. He's saying that's what this whole system has been doing. It's been pointing ahead to the reality that we find in Jesus. It was incomplete. And so there are two ways he points out here in these verses we read that it's incomplete. The first we see in verse 2. They're continually offered every year. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? That's the question. Why would it keep happening? So he says this, the constant repetition of the sacrifices proved that they were not effective. 
that they're not effective. The idea here is if you fix something, you don't need to keep getting it fixed. So if the sacrifices truly washed the worshipers, and if it truly cleansed their consciences, why then would they not be able to approach God freely instead of bringing more sacrifices? It's a repetitive thing that in itself points to something more, that something else needs to be done. And so a couple years ago, I was living at uh, an apartment complex, and they made you use internet and cable with their own little company. Uh, and it was just real small. I mean, it was just awful. They had bad service, bad customer support, everything like that. Well, for one month while I was living there, I had no internet and no cable. I mean, it was out for almost the entire month. And I had them come out to work on it at least five times during the month. And so I went, I tried to block out this month of my life, but I went back and was like, how many times did they come out? They came out a lot. And so I called up at the end of the month and said, how are you doing? They're like, fine. I was like, by the way, I don't want to pay for this last month of service because I did not receive service from you guys. And she goes, the lady I was talking to, um, bless her, goes, well, we fixed the problem. Like, when did you fix the problem? They're like, well, on the, the third of the month. I was like, okay, when was the next time y'all were out to fix the problem? She goes, oh, it looks like on the seventh. I was like, when was the next time y'all were out to fix the problem? She's like, oh, it looks like you came out on the eleventh. I was like, yeah, the problem never got fixed. It, you kept having to come out. You see, the whole month you were coming out to my bar, I had no service for the entire month. The same reason, if you keep taking your car to the same mechanic... For the same problem, I would suggest looking for a different mechanic. The car's not getting fixed. He's saying this, that the fact that you had to constantly repeat these sacrifices proves that you weren't cleansed, that your consciousness weren't cleansed in this deep, true way that he says Jesus does offer us. And then he says this in verse 3, what they were effective in doing was reminding us. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin. So he says they, they almost, in a sense, mocked the people. And so we've talked about in the past couple of weeks how powerful the system would be for someone's psyche, for someone's imagination, for someone's, I mean, just the way they viewed the world and themselves and God. So imagine, once again, if you were an Israelite, and from as long as you can remember growing up, you associated worshiping God, your sin, His holiness, with blood. Imagine if you thought of church as a place where blood was constantly flowing. Imagine if you thought of your sin with the smell of blood. Like those things were associated. The smell. The look on an animal's face before it was killed. I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm saying this is the system that was set up. I mean, this is how they would have... I mean, this was natural to them. This was God. This was their relationship with God. This is what their sin did. This is how they approached Him. That's a very powerful picture. That's something that will get deep into your mind and imagination and stay with you. And he's saying... They had that, and they had that daily and every year. And, and so if, when they would offer sacrifices, there would be some things associated with them. One, there would be lots of prayer and, and fasting. So they would pray and they would not eat. And then there would be confession, um, much beyond how we kind of have come to know confession. So they would oftentimes put their hand on the animal that was about to be slaughtered with the priest and then recite every sin that they could think of that they had committed. Um, and so there would be, I mean, you can imagine. I mean, if we brought you up right here, I told you, touch something with me, and I want you to list every possible sin that you can remember in your life. You would feel shame. You would feel guilt. You might start crying. I mean, it's, it's going to be a powerful thing. It's going to remind you of just how dirty you are. And we, we talked about even the way the tent was set up reminded you that there are so many obstacles between you and God. You walk into the courtyard. 
there's an altar. You walk into the first part of the tent, there's an altar. You walk into the third part of the tent, which you never actually entered. The high priest entered once a year. The whole system is set up almost as a reminder that, hey, something needs to happen that has not happened for you to approach God, for you to find life and goodness and happiness and joy at his presence. And so in verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. There were instead a picture, a shadow, the reality of which we find in Christ. Look in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Okay, so he quotes here Psalm 40, the book of Psalms, chapter 40, verse 6 through 8. And he attributes it to Jesus. Now, David wrote this psalm, um, but as the author of Hebrews is reading, he's going, hey, this sounds just like something Jesus would say. This sounds like something that was actually talking about Jesus that was also pointing outside of itself. And the psalm comes from a historical situation where David is in lots of trouble and is delivered. And once he's delivered, he wants to take worship to God. And he is reflecting on what God would be pleased with. And he says, surely a God this good deserves more than just an offering, than a burnt offering, than a sin offering. What could I bring him? And he ends up concluding, I'll bring him my life. The will of God is what he desires is one who's committed to him, one who's devoted to him, one who has completely surrendered to his will, to what he would have you do. So he says this, the, the desired sacrifice from God it was a, a human being who was devoted to him. And so we, we've talked about the threads that walk through um, the idea of sacrifice. One being taking something valuable to God in an act of worship. The other being being aware of your sin and God's grace to provide an atonement for your sin. And here we see both of those come together. Because what the author is saying here is that Christ, his sacrifice was what God had desired all along. A human being offering up his will. So we're, again, back to this mystery in Hebrews. There's so many different mysteries. The mystery that Jesus is at one time God and at one time human. Fully God. Fully human. We mentioned last week that you could see the cross as God himself shedding his blood. In fact, Paul would say that in Acts 20, as radical as it is that God shed his blood to obtain the church. And then if we look back to Hebrews chapter 2. As he talks about Psalm 8. The point is made that Jesus is the true human being. He was human where you and I weren't human. And his life is the offering. That washes our sins away. A human being devoted to his will. And then taking the place for sinners. Like you and I. So that his blood could wash us. What, what does God desire? I mean, this goes back all the way to Genesis. What does God really want? Does he want an animal? 
Or does he want his creation, his image, the Imago Dei, human beings, to follow him and worship him, obey him? And so Jesus has come, has done this, and has sacrificed his life for us. And so we find in verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His sacrifice completely cleanses us to approach God. This is the sacrifice that the picture was pointing towards. Remember, it was Jesus himself entering into what our sin had created and taking it on himself. If you remember the quote from last week, that the love God has for us is not the love that would stand far away from pain and heartache and destruction, but would instead say, I will take it for you. Two weeks ago, we talked about forgiving someone involves suffering. To forgive someone doesn't mean you just make their um, transgression go away. It means instead of making them pay for it, you pay for it. You let it stay inside of you. You and I had fallen away, and God says, I'll take the fall. Watch sin work itself out in me. And then with that blood, Jesus cleanses us. You and I, those who have been sanctified, who have been made holy through the offering once for all. Notice, we've got to be clear here. It's easy to think that God didn't desire sacrifice, but just obedience. That's not actually the comparison being made. It's not sacrifice in the Old Testament versus obedience in the New Testament. It's sacrifice of bulls and goats. Versus sacrifice of Jesus. It was a real body being killed. It was a real offering to God. But it wasn't an animal. It was the true human being, Jesus the Christ. In full submission to the Father's will. God himself dying on a cross for you and I. His blood would cleanse us. And so this is the picture of that we're given. That's the reality of who Jesus is. And then he's going to draw out another implication through the posture that we find between the Old Testament priest and the New Testament priest. So look in verse 11 here. Read with me because I'll, I'll need you to say a couple words. And every priest... Okay, y'all can do better. Every priest stands daily at the service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit, verse 15, bears witness to us for after, saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So here's the comparison. Old Testament priests had a posture of standing. They stood to offer the sacrifices. They stood for a couple of reasons. One, in uh, ancient times, standing was the posture of work. So you and I uh, very commonly will imagine, let me sit down and do some work. Let me sit down and do my homework. Let me sit down at my desk and do my work. Um, that's not common back then. You would sit to rest. Sitting meant you weren't doing anything important. When you were working, you were standing up. Second, the, the priests were constantly doing stuff. 
So this was not a job that you kind of got to relax on and goof around in. Um, think of all of Israel needing to come to you and to make atonement for their sins. And so you're constantly praying. You're constantly offering sacrifices. You're constantly going into the holy place, the first section, to do what? What we talked about, the ritual duties, trimming the lamp, changing out the bread. There are all these things to be done. You're constantly standing. And then he says, Jesus, when he came into the true presence of God, what the Holy of Holies in the tent was pointing towards, God's actual presence, heaven itself, he sits down at God's right hand. The old priest, they stood. Jesus, he sits down. You can tell a lot about somebody. Um, you can read a lot into a situation by someone's posture, by their body language. Um, and so, I mean, human beings are very good at this. Uh, you can, if I see someone a few feet away and it's kind of a big guy and he has like his teeth gnarled and his eyebrows furred and his French clist, um, I'm not, uh, or his fist clenched, I'm not going to uh, like just run up. I, I'm not going to go face first at least, right? I mean, I'm going to be like, hey buddy, what's up? Because he looks like he's about to punch somebody. And I don't want it to be me. But if I see that same guy laughing and waving me over and like doing like a hug motion, I'm like, what's up, buddy? I'm going to run over to him because I can tell from his body language there's not a threat there. There's no danger there. I'm reading a whole bunch into his attitude, the situation from his body language. I can do this during sermons. Someone's sitting there with their um, kind of sit up in their seat and kind of leaned in looking at me. I'm like, they're probably focused in. They're probably tracking with me. But if they're slouched back and looking at the ceiling, I'm like, they're probably not paying attention to me. I mean, you can read a whole lot into someone's body posture. Not calling anyone out. I'm just saying. Two examples. That's enough. Um, so he says here, you're looking at the Old Testament priest. They're sitting. The New Testament high priest, Jesus, he stands. And he says, we can read so much into that. And he's going to draw this out in, in three ways here in this text, these verses. I want to point your attention to them. The first one is this. He's sitting down because his work of atonement is done. He's sitting down because his work of atonement is done. When Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin. Because that work of atonement is done. One sacrifice. Jesus on the cross says what? He says, it is finished. It's finished. Now there's so much joy and freedom to be had here. For those who would, would like to worship. For those who would like to see on the cross your sins being washed away being dealt with so your past sins I mean that all of us I believe have things in our past that haunt us and that just still causes some shame and and we still just don't want anyone to find out about that and Jesus at the right hand sits down and says it's been dealt with it's finished it's been atoned and then for you and I I mean so interesting our present sins and our future sins atoned for. I mean, all of our sins were, were future tense when Jesus died. So, it's interesting. He's not going to be surprised by anything we do. Right? I mean, we're not going to get up to the pearly gates and he's going to be like, well, I did not see that coming. I did not include that in the whole atonement thing. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's finished. One sacrifice. Washed clean. So, so here's... What happens to so many of us? 
we get into this habit or pattern of thinking that somehow we need to clean ourselves up to go to God. Because again, where are we going to find goodness? Where are we going to find life? Where are we going to find joy? Where are we going to find the freedom that we need from our sins? At God's presence. But, but we think, I'm too dirty. I'm too stained. So let me, let me work a little bit, and then I'll go. Let me clean myself up just a little bit, then I'll approach him. He was saying, no, 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 you can't do that. If you flip to, to chapter 4, the passage we already walked through, um, verse 16, it says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He's saying this is the most dangerous mistake you can make, is to run from God when you should be running to him. So we fall and we need him. And the one place we can find help, we run from desperately because we don't understand, we don't believe, we don't have faith that he's atoned for us. Let's play this out like this. If you have a hard time, so you wake up, two scenarios. Day one, you wake up, spend three hours at a quiet time, you're reading through Leviticus, I mean, you're just blowing through it, you're not stopping. You witness to your neighbor outside, you give him a couple pamphlets, you go to work, you pray with all your coworkers, you come home, your marriage is perfect. You have a Bible study with your kids. They're both converted. And then, before you go to bed, you pray. And it's easy to pray for you. When you pray and it's just a good time, you go to sleep. Day number two, you wake up. You're late. The alarm didn't go off, so no quiet time. You get to work and the person you've been witnessing to annoys you a little bit, so you kind of go off on them. Opportunity blown. You, you come home and your kids um, are not behaving very well. I know that doesn't happen, but they're not in this fictitious scenario. And instead of converting them, you threaten them with hell. Um, and then you you get ready for bed and, and for some reason you don't feel like praying. For some reason maybe you think you need a day before you can pray again. You need another day one. That's, that's what just happened there. You think I've got to clean myself up to approach him. When the atonement is done, your sins have been washed away. And this is radical and this is dangerous. This work of atonement is done. There's lots there to, to worship in and to find joy in. The second point we'll, we'll see here is the new covenant has been put into effect. It started. Um, he quotes it again here in verse 15. This is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is all of God's promises are now coming true in you and I. I want you to notice something. If you look in verse 15, there's one word here that's, that's pretty huge. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. The, the picture is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us these words. Now, when we first had these words quoted to us in chapter 8, it was the Holy Spirit speaking to the Israelites, saying, hey, a day is coming when the new covenant will be put into effect. After our discussion on Jesus and his sacrifice, the author shifts his language and says, today, in Sugarland, Texas, at 1140, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. This is the covenant I have made with them. I will put my laws on their heart and write it on their mind. 
I will transform them. They will find at my side freedom from the things that bog them down, from the sins that entangle them. And I will forgive them. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He's saying with this, with Jesus sitting down at God's right hand, the new covenant has been inaugurated. God's great promise of salvation. You and I are living in it. A new age has dawned. The first has been put away. The second has come. And you and I are, remember, like the Israelites waiting for our high priest to exit out of the Holy of Holies and return to the people. When you and I are like the Israelites in front of the promised land, waiting to take the step into eternity. And then this last one I, I want to point out here. Um, it's easy to look over it. But if you look in verse 13, right after Jesus sits down, verse 13, you can almost, I mean, just read it and not think about it. He says this, waiting from that time, he's sitting down, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. This is a quote. For those of us who've been tracking through most of Hebrews, this is a quote from something we know very well, from Psalm 110, which is his favorite psalm. A lot of people, again, have said Hebrews is really just a sermon on Psalm 110. If you remember Psalm 110, the psalm, the song, this poem about the son, the king, who is also the high priest. The reason we talked about Melchizedek in chapter 7 is because of Psalm 110. And then the priest, the son, when he's sitting at the right hand of God, is waiting for God to make his enemies a footstool. For God to make all that opposes him worthy of nothing more than to be rested on. And so he quotes this here. And he says, as Jesus sits down where he is now, where we are now in history, Jesus is waiting for his enemies to be destroyed. So we, we see this, that a feat of all that enslaves creation is imminent. It's imminent. It's around the corner. What are, are Christ's enemies? What are going to be put under his feet? Well, we know one, and I think that one will help us deduce all the others. In 1 Corinthians 15, this psalm is also quoted. And he says what? After this chapter of resurrection, that when you and I are resurrected, the last enemy will be destroyed. Death. 1 Corinthians 15. You can go read it this week. The last enemy to be destroyed. Death itself will die and be put under his feet. Corruption and abuse, oppression, poverty, sickness, sin, and all of its effects are on a countdown. There's a timer running. It's been put into place. The first domino has toppled. And it's a matter of time until they're all defeated. He's sitting at the right hand of God waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet. He's sitting down. This is the posture that Hebrews gives us. So Hebrews is written to a group of people by a pastor. It's a sermon. He calls it a sermon at the end of the book. It's written to a group of people who are in danger of falling away, as we all are. I mean, so we live between peril and promise. That's how we live our lives. Between a cliff on this side and then the promises of God on this side. And, and more than we know, maybe, there are all these temptations around us. Temptations maybe to have a huge fall or maybe just to slowly, without ever realizing it, fall away. 
when you wake up 30 years from now and go, how did I get here? Have I not prayed in 10, 15 years? Have I not been to church in forever? How do how my relationships look like this? I mean, we're, we're right between there. And the pastor writing Hebrews is, is speaking to his people and going, guys, focus. Put your eyes on him who is worthy. Run to God where you are accepted because of the atonement to find help. To find transformation. I want to point out as we wrap up here, there's one time in the scriptures that I know of where Jesus is given a different posture at God's right hand. If you remember in Acts, um, a guy named Stephen dies. He's martyred for the faith. You can go, go read the story this week. He's martyred, and as he's given up his life, um, the clouds open up and he sees heaven. He sees God, and he sees Jesus at God's right hand, but Jesus is standing at God's right hand. There's always been a very interesting picture. And some people have wondered, is, is this just a mistake? Is this just real metaphorical, figurative language where he's not actually trying to make a point here? Then others have pointed out that this is, again, the one time we see Jesus standing up at God's right hand. That maybe it's significant. So, so work through what's happening when Stephen is dying. Well, it's a human being offering up their life to God. It's giving God the desired sacrifice, sacrifice of Romans 12, our, our lives. And Jesus, the high priest, who sits down, done with his work of atonement, stands to receive Stephen into the kingdom. I think there may be something very significant happening there. The same way that, that you and I instinctively stand up at a sporting event when we're proud or excited. What's happening there? What are we doing with our posture? Why are we standing up to support them? Could this be what Hebrews said early on? That he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Those who follow him. He sits at the right hand and, and he stands for his children. So here's my, my prayer and my hope is as we continue through Hebrews, as we continue living again in a world surrounded by materialism, surrounded by wrong examples of love and forgiveness, surrounded by all of these things that threaten to derail us, as we keep our eyes on Him. We keep our eyes on Him knowing that He has washed us. Knowing that with the same ferocious love that would cause Him to give His life for us, He will see it through. Philippians 1 6, he began a good work, will be faithful to finish it. And so we worship. We worship. And we thank God for the, the pictures and the postures that he's given us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for just the chance to, to work through them, um, the chance to pay attention where maybe we haven't paid attention before. And I just pray that that you would allow these truths to be more than, than just words and, and fancy, cute phrases, but that they would be deep realities that historically have happened, that have then historically changed us, that empirically have given us a new status as those washed, forgiven, those who God is writing his law on their hearts. Father, we're, we're all aware, I mean, we're, we're more than aware that we are dirty and sinful, that even today we fall so short, that tomorrow we fall so short, and, and we worship and praise you that it's not on us, 
but you're not waiting for us to somehow do something to be worthy of approaching you. You're going, hey, you've been washed. Come to me. Come to me and then find life. Then find freedom. Then find the transformation that you need and are longing for. So we, we pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us, draw us near to you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for his sacrifice and your love for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen.